MSW Media. This week, the Supreme Court found that Trump is not above the law. But we still don't have his tax returns. Can he ever be held accountable? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I join Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I have to say, you know, this has been a eventful week. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, we, there, we could have talked a lot about a lot of different topics this week, but I think that yesterday's decisions, uh, from the Supreme Court regarding Trump's tax returns really brought to light sort of a ongoing struggle that people have and frustration that many people have, which is no matter how many courts rule against him, no matter how many times that we hear all sorts of people, whether they're judges or prosecutors or former prosecutors or anyone telling us that Trump is not following the law or didn't follow the law. He still seems to be able to get away with, you know, pushing things forward, not really uh, uh, doing what he's supposed to do. And I think people are starting to get fed up with it. Well, I think that there many of us have been fed up for a long time, but it's also the level of delusion that he has and and many of the people who still support him uh and i did i mishear him or misread or misunderstand that he says that he's gonna he wants to go back down to the lower courts and i don't have a legal degree but my understanding is once you get to the supreme court that's pretty much where it rests isn't it it is now these cases well there are aspects of this in which the supreme court said for example and we'll talk more about this uh is that, you know, the, the Manhattan DA, um, can subpoena his tax returns. Trump is not immune. He's not held to a higher standard. However, everybody can challenge subpoenas on various grounds and he can go and, you know, in the lower court and challenge whatever, you know, that whatever, you know, say that he's being harassed with the subpoena or it's unduly burdensome or whatever the arguments are going to be. And the Supreme Court is, you know, didn't have those issues before it because Trump hadn't made those challenges yet. And essentially what we're seeing, I think, is people being upset at the system. In other words, one thing I think I'll, I'll confess something to you, Patty. I cannot watch the show Law and Order. I, I've watched it a few times, but it drives me insane <laughs> Okay, because it is not at all congruent with my experience with the criminal justice system as somebody who investigated and prosecuted crime. 
And I think people love these shows because they know at the end of it, the bad guy within 47 minutes, if you count, take it into account commercial time, the bad guy is going to be can confess and be caught and found guilty and everything's going to get wrapped up in some tidy way. And I think that is the sense of justice that it creates a certain satisfaction for people that the bad guys uh, get caught and, you know, led away in handcuffs. And that's just not the way the world works in, in that simplistic of a fashion. And I think people are starting to realize and learn firsthand uh, some of the lessons that I learned long ago about how the system works and how the wheels of justice move very slowly and so forth. I love that. I, I agree because uh, I, we do. We are thirsty for justice. And, you know, no matter how corrupt or dirty any other president might have ever been in our history, uh, it's never been amplified to this extent. And, you know, watching people just blindly uh, follow him and defend him and show up at rallies, even under the, the possibility of, you know, contracting a deadly disease, it's just surreal. Well, absolutely. And I think. Both of us probably know people, I even have family members who believe that the virus is a hoax, um, who believe all sorts of crazy things that they've been convinced by him. You know, just today, Trump is saying, of course, that, you know, once again, mail-in balloting is a fraud. The election is going to be stolen from him. You know, there's all sorts of dangerous things that the media, of course, the enemy of the people, all these very dangerous things that he tries to convince people of, they believe them. Uh, and, you know, I, I really get the sense that with, with his, you know, with his supporters, they might believe just about anything. Oh, no doubt about it. And I think we've seen the the lies and the attacks uh, really manifest, you know, for example, during the protest when members of the press were being attacked by law enforcement because of the this, you know, hammering away at journalists and saying that they're liars, they're fake news, that they're uh, threats to uh, democracy. I, I, you know, there was one reporter in Minnesota who was blinded now. There were reporters that were, um, you know, not just uh, abused or, or, you know, arrested, but really physically harmed in many ways across the country. Yeah, I am deeply concerned uh, about Trump's attack on attacks uh, in the free press, because really, they are what is keeping us uh, free. And I think that, um, you know, he is systematically trying to go after institutions that can check his power, whether it's our electoral system, which can get him out of office or the press, which can report on his misdeeds. You know, it, it's definitely a scary sight. You know, we had you know, one of the greatest things that happened in American history was George Washington uh, deciding not to become a king in refusing uh, a third term as president, uh, even after he had, you know, he could, he had won two terms, easily could have won a third. And I think, you know, for, you know, one of the first times in human history, you had somebody saying, look, I don't want absolute power and uh, I uh, am going to live within sort of limited power and have the people have some input in that, or at least at that point, some of the people, you know, given, given obviously some of the problems of that era, but nonetheless, with with Trump, you have somebody who who is trying to do everything he can to work against a system that constrains his power. And, uh, you know, he I will say that, you know, people keep looking for some magic bullet that's going to stop that. And really, I think the closest thing to a magic bullet is the election. Uh, and I think if it's not, I think people are, are starting to realize that other than the election, there's no bullet in the gun that is going to accomplish that. No. And, and, you know, beyond 
the threats and painting journalists as an enemy of the country, you know, and, and also now, as you mentioned, saying that the mail-in ballots, that there's going to be fraud, trying to already drum up this suspicion and, and uh, pitting us against each other so that it, in, the, in the event that he does lose, and fingers crossed, um, you know, folks will retaliate. But also, you know, the fact that we have over 135,000 fatalities from this virus that was manageable, and we're seeing other countries, you know, Scot- the, the, the Scottish uh, are mocking. I mean, people are mocking us over something that is incredibly tragic, and it's surreal. Yeah, absolutely. It's sad because we're seeing the European Union have very few cases at this point uh, relative to us. And, uh, you know, that's obviously also a large industrialized area, uh, and they've managed it differently. So I I have to say, um, you know, Trump uh, has really not only mismanaged uh, this crisis, but he's he's was, you know, he is responsible for the deaths of many Americans as a result. And in my mind, you know, I'm not, not a political analyst or political strategist, but, you know, that is to me the issue of the election. And it's amazing because Trump has done so many other evil, wrongheaded, problematic, anti-democratic, racist, also things. And yet, you know, he's, he's managed to one up himself. Uh, and this seems to be one of the first things he's done that really cuts across a partisan lines. You're starting to see some real movement in his numbers. Oh yeah. Well, I, I hope, and I think for those of us who have waited over the last three years, hoping that there would be some, as you mentioned, uh, the end of a, a law and order episode where you know, justice is served. Uh, I think that, you know, we're, we're heading toward the end, hopefully of his administration but there was a, a desire for the Supreme Court to intervene at some point or one of these investigations or something come to fruition. And uh, instead, we're, we're kind of limping to uh, November. Yeah, I, I will say, you know, I as anybody who's listened to our podcast regularly knows, uh, I have always pooed the idea that uh, Trump was going to be let off in handcuffs. Uh, I've been doing that for years. It's not nearly as sexy as the people who are tweeting uh, hashtag justice is coming. Um, but I, I think it's more accurate. Um, and I, you know, I think, um, you know, it's interesting to me, I will say, Patty, that at this point, I figured everybody is sort of putting their hopes, uh, on the election if you're a progressive or, you know, in the resistance, so to speak. And yet, uh, I will say that it was interesting for me to see the reaction to the Supreme Court decision yesterday, because from my perspective, you had seven out of the nine justices in the Supreme Court saying, no, the president isn't above the law. Uh, no, he doesn't have immunity from state, you know, criminal subpoenas. Uh, no, he, there's no heightened standard. He stands essentially in, I think is essentially the words of the Supreme Court. He stands essentially in the same shoes as everyone else. He can make an argument that the subpoena was specifically, this specific subpoena was designed to harass him, which seems like a very hard thing to do. And that, you know, and that subpoena in particular was to his accountants, not to him. But, you know, other than that, he just can make the same challenges that he other citizen can make. You know, that is something that's a very positive result, I think, for our system. The Supreme Court saying, you know, Trump isn't above the law. But I think a lot of people were calling it a win for Trump. I mean, I 
Uh, I don't watch tons of TV, but I'm told that that's what all the TV analysts were saying. And that was certainly the commentary I was seeing on Twitter. A lot of people were telling me, well, Trump won. He gets to delay this till after the election. And I think, you know, we've gotten to a stage where there's an expectation that there's going to be some big boom that's going to happen and massive change in the Trump administration. And unless there's something very tangible in the short term, it feels like Trump is still winning to people. Oh, no doubt about it. And and to your point about, uh, you know, really the, the, the biggest weapon we have now is the election in November. For people who are in states where they feel like their votes don't count because you might be already a blue state, and I would say be as active as you can. It, in this election, it's not enough to just vote. Uh, find out how you can phone bank, send postcards. I know a friend of mine has got 10,000 postcards that she'll be sending to states, uh, swing states, and, and even red states in general, uh, reminding them to even one to vote. Uh, you know, if you know of, of folks, any way to get involved and, and register people to vote, uh, be more proactive this time. It's not enough. When we say vote, uh, I think that we have to do more than that this time. You know, I got to I will say, uh, um, uh, Patty, one of our patrons in our um, Facebook group asked a question that I've been mulling how to answer this question, which was, you know, how could I get more involved? You know, I wanted to do I want to do more to help. I think it's a harder question this cycle because of the coronavirus. And I, I'm going to confess something, Patty. This is something I struggled with. I had all these plans of all the stuff I was going to do this cycle and all these things that I was working on with different people to try to make a difference in this election cycle. And I haven't done everything that I wanted to do this year. I, I ha, you know, Do you feel the same way? And what, what are you th- what do you think people can and should be doing to get involved. Well, exactly. Look, we're not going to be able to do uh, rallies or door to door. And and in Illinois, you know, this is going to this state will go blue for for Biden. Uh, But we uh, we have neighbors in in Wisconsin and Indiana and Michigan uh, pretty close to us. And I but I do think that I think that phone banking can make a difference. And it's hard. Um, You know, I think that writing postcards, writing personal notes, I think postcards, I know it sounds corny. But if you have the ability to get involved that way, uh, talking to anybody you possibly can, you know, don't waste your energy in places where you're just going to get sucked into arguments on social media. Um, pick and choose your moments. And, and as far as like feeling bad about not doing more so, uh, so far, uh, I would quote a friend of mine, um, Diana Limo, who uh, I lost in 2001 because I was telling her, you know, I don't I feel like I should be farther along in my career. And Diane turned to me and she said, it's not about what you've done. It's about what you're going to do. And uh, I think that, you know, find those those connections with um, with different campaigns, whether it's the Biden campaign. But in particular, I would say down ballot obviously is very important as well. The local elected officials really have a direct impact on your everyday life. And, w- and in this situation, you know, as far as the last three years, you know, I've gotten very involved locally. And that's been a way where I feel like I have at least some control in my life when everything else seemed out, of, you know, in complete chaos. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a very valuable advice, Patty. First of all, definite words of wisdom uh, from your late friend. I, I think for all of us, we can only look forward, not backwards. So if you haven't done much this cycle because you've been focused on other issues, I think all of us have, whether it's family, uh, whether it's just our own struggles, whether it's financial, uh, there's everybody's got, I think, during yes. this year is is dealing with some measure of struggle. 
I think the que- you know the question is moving forward, what can we do? And you know, as you point out, getting involved locally, I think that's a great place to start because that's one thing I think Republicans do very well is they build great local organizations, and it kind of bubbles up from there. You know, this is an important election because the control of state legislatures, the control of go- of uh, governorships, uh, gubernatorial uh, races, they're, they matter so much because the the census uh, is coming and the the lines are going to get redrawn in 2021. And so we're, uh, you know, who's in control of the legislature? Who's in control of the gubernatorial seats? Those are those those spots are going to determine who draws the lines. And as we've seen with gerrymandering, that can have such an impact that really can, you know, have a reverberating effect. Right. It can either cement a majority uh, for one side like it did for the Republicans and or make it hard to flip. So, you know, we really uh, need to care on all sorts of levels. If your state, like like the one that we're in, Patty, if if that your state is not one that is a swing state, you know, there's opportunities to get involved even in local races. I mean, we saw, for example, a very a very uh, disappointing decision recently by the Wisconsin Supreme Court this week to to uh, essentially permit uh, changes that went forward after the election, right after the election of the Democratic governor, to reduce the power of the governor in that state. And, you know, that's in, those are elected positions, Wisconsin Supreme Court. If people, you know, want to see change in, in Wisconsin, getting involved in those Supreme Court races, are, are those are ways you can make a difference. Well, and, and I think uh, this pandemic has shown us how important your local government is. If you go state by state and react, the way the response has been, uh, you know, whether it was the shelter in place. I mean, Pritzker did a very good job. You can see our numbers and, uh, you know, look, we have a long way to go and, and, you know, hopefully we don't see a spike again here, but other states where they, you know, followed, you know, felt that they had to follow the president or really encouraged people to, to ignore any of the dangers. Uh, I think that we're seeing that your life can depend on who you elect locally. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, I think we're seeing more than ever that without real leadership at the national level, uh, because I think leadership at the national level would have made all the difference here, having a, a mask mandate and having a nationwide, uh, you know, uh, uh, determinations regarding uh, when, you know, when people should be staying at home and so forth. Without that, you know, we've relied more than ever on local uh, officials like governors and even people like, you know, obviously mayors and so forth to try to manage this crisis. Uh, their impact is felt more than ever. Well, look, I think it's time uh, for us to bring in our guest. And, and I got to tell you, I am excited to have her back with us because she, you know, I, she's very much loved by listeners. I get lots of positive feedback uh, all the time, every time we have her on. Um, and that's Joyce Vance. Uh, and she is the former United States attorney uh, for the Northern District of Alabama. She was appointed by President Obama to that post. And many of you know her because she's an MSNBC legal analyst, so she's on that network all the time. You've probably seen her this week talking about the Supreme Court decisions and plenty of other things. Uh, she uh, she offers, I think, a great perspective on a whole variety of issues that can help us uh, think about uh, Trump's accountability uh, in this election year. So let's bring in Joyce Vance. Welcome back to the podcast, Joyce. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with y'all. So, Joyce, you know, yesterday we had those those uh, two important decisions. Well, we obviously we had three important decisions by the Supreme Court, but two in particular dealt with Trump's uh, tax returns. I, I viewed them as a victory for the rule of law 
Uh, but many others, I think, had a different perspective and thought that uh, Trump won because his tax returns, of course, are still uh, not not uh, public and that that litigation will ensue. What, what was your gen- general take on that? So my take on yesterday was that the rule of law was was actually the victor. Um, I was happy but not surprised, I have to say, to see the Supreme Court decide the case precisely as legal practitioners expected that they would, based on the law and the facts and not on extraneous factors, political factors that should not enter the court's calculus. Um, so that I thought, you know, was, I mean, that's a low bar, right, to be happy about that, but it was certainly something to be happy about and that the opinion was 7-2. But beyond that, the the opinions were an unambiguous loss for the president who had gone in asserting that he had absolute immunity that a state DA could not investigate him, that Congress could not engage in any oversight of him. I know everyone will remember Trump earlier this year saying, you know, I have an article too that lets me do whatever I want. Yesterday, the Supreme Court said, no, 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 you don't. Um, They made it very clear that Cy Vance, the Manhattan district attorney, who I guess I should say I'm not related to, um, that, that Vance had the ability to investigate a president, and that it was not narrowly circumscribed. All, all that Vance will have to do uh, back in the trial court to be able to move forward is to demonstrate that there is a, uh, a rational basis, essentially. That's sort of my summary of the Supreme Court's test that they established. It's a very low threshold. Um, Trump's lawyers will certainly assert that the president is being harassed, but given the available uh, information about the president's misconduct in New York, um, for one thing, in the uh, Cohen uh, indictment, I don't think Vance has great difficulty moving forward. And then as far as congressional oversight, similarly, the court established a four-pronged test with the possibility that there might be additional factors it would be appropriate to consider, but Congress is clearly entitled to engage in oversight on an area within their uh, jurisdiction, and so long as the subpoenas are uh, narrowly drawn. So yesterday, an unambiguous win for the rule of law and a loss for the president, even though delay and the courts have tended to favor him over time. Here, not so much, I suspect. Yeah, I think that's right. That was that was my reading as well, Joyce. I thought that the opinions, it's hard to, to view, read those opinions and view them as a victory for the president in any way, shape or form. I think he was, he was hurt by the fact that he, he made, you know, his lawyers made, I would say, pretty absurd, very aggressive arguments, essentially saying he was completely immune from state court criminal proceedings, uh, that he, Essentially, it seemed like that, you know, he was either uh, absolutely immune or had a heightened standard for, congr- you know, for for congressional subpoenas. Of course, the Supreme Court rejected those. You know, wh- what extent do you wh- what do you think was the play there? Was that a, just a delay game by his attorneys or did they think that they really could get five votes for this absolute immunity idea? I think that that's the million dollar question here that we don't know the answer to. The arguments were specious. I thought there was some chance that some justices might take a slap at those lawyers for them, but to the extent that they did, it was very uh, low-key and and almost demure. It seems that the president's lawyers were 
uh, arguing, as so many people do in this day and age, to the army of one, to the president, trying to keep him happy with their services. Certainly, even the justices who were in the minority on these cases didn't buy into those arguments. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, we had only two justices side. Uh, well, they didn't even side with those arguments, as you point out, but they didn't they didn't join the judgment of the majority. And th- those, of course, were justices Alito and Thomas. But even they had really as they as I think the chief justice pointed out, there was very little uh, difference really between where they came out and, and way, where he did. And as you point out, Joyce, I think no one was willing to buy into those arguments. And, and I know, Patty, we had a question from our listeners about the absolute immunity argument uh, that you may, you wanted to uh, address. Uh, yeah, and I think this is, you know, you know, folks want to be a little forward thinking as well. The basis of Trump's claim was categorical, categorical immunity rejected by SCOTUS. Trump's main argument on impeachment was absolute immunity. And these sound similar. First of all, they want to know, are they and do these rulings hint at future court opinions on legal viability of absolute immunity as well? So that's an interesting question. I'll be interested to see Renato's take on it. But I'll tell you, I hesitate to read too much into Supreme Court rulings, particularly when they involve the president and the scope of activity for the president. I I had actually wondered if the only question that was presented in these cases was not the larger atmospheric question of whether a president could uh, in fact be subject to this kind of process, but the actual question of whether these specific uh, subpoenas were adequate. I, I thought that the president might have actually come out a little bit better, might have picked up a few more votes for his side of the argument. So I think crystal balling is is always dangerous. Yeah, I uh, I agree with uh, with you, Joyce. That I think I, I wouldn't draw any general conclusions uh, from this. And I actually I agree with your observation about the questions that were presented to the Supreme Court. So everyone needs to understand that the issues that were before the Supreme Court here were, as Joyce pointed out, fairly narrow. I mean, on the the uh, subpoena from the Manhattan DA. Those subpoenas were not even directed at Trump. They were directed uh, elsewhere. And so the question the question there was just, is he immune? Does he have some immunity from state court criminal process such that his information can't be sought uh, by criminal investigators? And or is there some sort of heightened need standard uh, that prosecutors have to fulfill? And on that, uh, the, the Supreme Court said uh, no as to both of those things. All these other questions about whether or not, as, as Joyce pointed out, these subpoenas were meant to harass him or so on. None of that was before the Supreme Court. They couldn't resolve those issues. And on the congressional subpoenas, the issue there was very it was very similar. And really, they didn't delve into whether or not the subpoenas were, you know, narrowly, uh, uh, narrowly drafted to um, to uh, um, only obtain information that was needed for a legislative purpose and so forth. And I think on the the D, I think the DA subpoena would have been okay. No, you know, I think we would have had a similar vote uh, total no matter what. But I think on the congressional subpoena side, I could really see, as you said, Joyce, that the justices could have gone differently. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why. Even the seven in the majority said, Let, let's have the, the lower courts take a closer look at these subpoenas and, if necessary, narrow them to meet the legislative purpose that Congress has. I think that that is 
um, you know, I think that represents in their part an unwillingness to just completely embrace the subpoenas as they were written. You know, I think that's a really good point and something that I might have considered suggesting had I been counsel to one of the congressional, the three committees with subpoenas outstanding, would have been to issue new, more narrowly drawn subpoenas that were specifically hinged into a precise legislative purpose just to meet these uh, sort of four elements that the court has now set forth to be precisely clear that the subpoenas needed to move forward. I, I wonder if we'll see something like that in the next few days. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Joyce. I think that's a good uh, good point that you raise. I, I would do the same thing. So if I was a lawyer for a congressional uh, committee, I know we have some some people in that ilk that do listen to our podcast. Uh, what I would do is I would take a look at that opinion and I would um, figure out, okay, how are my subpoenas going to look when measured up against that balancing test? And if necessary, just scale them back. Or even if you want to keep the original subpoena, just decide on your own, we're going to narrow it. You know, st- tell, you know, say in writing to the other side, you know, I know we're asking for X, Y, Z, you know, we want a little less than that. And that, that happens all the time. I mean, I spend a lot, of, I, I is, I'm a practicing lawyer. I represent clients regularly. And it's often the case that when I get a subpoena from the government, uh, that we can have a negotiation and figure out a way to narrow that subpoena or get a reissued subpoena. So that's absolutely right. And not to belabor the point, but here, I, I don't mean any criticism of how Congress issued the subpoenas when I say they might want to redraft them. I think that those subcommittees sent out the sorts of subpoenas that are normally used in that process. And as Chief Justice Roberts went to great pains to point out in the opinion, there's typically an accommodation process where the executive branch and the legislative branch go back and forth even when they don't agree on document turnover until accommodation is reached. And these subpoenas look like the first step in that process. What is shockingly off the rails about this presidency is that they refuse to participate in that sort of a process. Their response isn't, well, let's negotiate. We don't think that you're entitled to all of this, but let us give you some of what you want. Trump just said, no, you're not getting anything, no oversight, absolutely nothing. And that's why I think it might make sense for the committees now to come back and narrowly draw their subpoenas. Yeah, I think that's a good clarification, Joyce. And none of us are being critical of that. In fact, that is exactly the way the process usually works. And the, the Supreme Court talked about that in the opinions about how, uh, in the um, Lazar's opinion, about how there typically is that that back and forth. And that did not happen here, which is why this was a, a first time issue before the Supreme Court. And that, and by analogy, that uh, that sort of process. Um, occurs in other contexts as well. I certainly, when I issued subpoenas when I was a federal prosecutor, I would issue broad subpoenas, as you said, as the kind of the starting point of a process. And then I would negotiate with the defense counsel and figure out a schedule of what I really needed first and figuring out, you know, uh, what, what I needed uh, urgently and, and, you know, what sort of schedule would, would work out in a way that would be accommodating uh, to both uh, to both sides uh, and not uh, delay my investigation. And I imagine here this was essentially, as you pointed out, it's essentially an opening bid of a sort, saying, "Okay, here's everything that we could we could possibly want," and you'd expect there to be a negotiation afterwards. 
Yeah, I think that that's exactly what, what was going on here. So that's bad on Trump. Well, indeed. Uh, I, I will I will say, um, you know, one thing that is frustrating, though, to folks, Joyce, is that I think a lot of people are frustrated with the speed of the court system. They feel that Trump wins even when he loses because he finds ways to delay. And, and you know, one analogy I, I was talking with Patty before you joined is I think people – a lot of times we watch so many shows like Law & Order – where we're, we get justice within 47 minutes, if you count commercials, uh, take out commercials. And there's a sense that the sort of justice is something where it, it happens and every, there, everything kind of gets wrapped up very quickly. And of course, that's not how the real world works. And that's not what's happening here. I think, you know, in part because of, co- of course, the obstruction and, and the delays that are, that are, that Trump is causing, I think you're seeing a lot of delay. You know, wh- what is your take about how the how our legal system and our and our our judicial system is equipped to handle um uh you know a, a presidency like this one so i share everybody's frustration with the slowness of the courts i just have to be upfront and say that i've always been a strong believer in the courts and the justice system and the way trump has been able to play the system with delay i think um challenges our confidence in the courts or if not our confidence it just challenges whether the courts are up to the task of dealing with someone who doesn't act in good faith, but is in a position of great responsibility and exceptional power because of that position. That's, that's really what's going on here. The president has abused the system to his advantage in a way that no one would have ever contemplated a president might do, not even Richard Nixon. So, The answer to your question whether the system is resilient enough to handle it, I think, turns on individual judges. And and here's a good example. You know, like I do, that judges under a, a rule of procedure called Rule 11 have the ability to slap litigants, to slap lawyers and litigants with sanctions for extremely bad misconduct. It's rarely used. The judges don't like to engage with these kind of sanctions. They're sort of like your parents. You know, when when two kids, two litigants are squabbling, they don't really care who started it or who's wrong. They just want it to end so that they can decide the case. The question moving forward is whether the judiciary, and of course it consists of a lot of different independent judges with different beliefs and backgrounds, but whether the judiciary is an institution is serious about making the Article II branch, the presidency, behave itself and act within constitutional constraints. Up until now, Trump has been the the beneficiary of delay. Judges can expedite schedules, though. There's nothing that says that they can't. They often do in serious cases, like in death penalty cases. You'll see decisions made very, very quickly um, as, as the time towards execution gets closer. There's nothing that says that these judges can't expedite considerations now and force the president to respond quickly if he wants to continue to protect his personal financial information. I think that's I think that's right. By the way, I got to say I love your analogies, Joyce. The squabbling kids analogy is a very uh, a very apt one uh, for how often litigation can uh, can ensue or can uh, proceed. I will say though, you know, one thing I do want to give for our listeners a bit of perspective is that. 
you know, Trump is not the only person who slow plays things in the courts, who introduces delay. There are plenty of litigants who do that. Uh, many large companies at times, if they're, you know, people who are very sophisticated are going to try to uh, take fully participate in every aspect of the judicial process. And at times those proceedings take a long time. But of course, in a typical lawsuit, you're dealing with a dispute over money, for example, not something in which the entire a nation is at stake. And I agree with you, Joyce, I thought your analogy of a of a death penalty case was a an apt one in that obviously those those cases are dealt with with the utmost uh, seriousness by the courts because the stakes, of course, are so significant, someone's life. Um, but here, of course, our nation is at stake uh, in many respects. And, you know, the courts really have not at always uh, acted with that same d- deliberate speed. And, and um, you know, I think that um, I think that that has, you know, that part of that is is that, um, you know, it's uh, there's a deference to the president and the executive uh, branch, which, um, the, by the way, has come from the top down. The Supreme Court has shown uh, a lot of deference to the executive branch, uh, giving them, I would say, um, consideration that uh, it would not give to other uh, litigants. But separate and apart from that, I do wonder if, you know, there is a sense to which perhaps we are loading more on our courts um, in terms of responsibility here than it is meant to bear. In other words, you know, this the, the courts are an important, they're a branch, important co-equal branch of government. They're clearly a check uh, on the executive branch, but they're not supposed to be the only check. And we are at a point now where, for example, Congress isn't doing its job. And really, ultimately, um, the the judges are being asked to do more than they may have ever really been asked, at least in my lifetime. I think that that's right. But, you know, I think um, to continue my stream of bad analogies, I'll just say that being a judge is a little like entering into a marriage. You take on the job for better or for worse. Sometimes it's easy to be a judge and you make decisions that make people happy. Other times you have to make decisions that are hard decisions that people might not be happy about. And the point of being a federal judge with life tenure is so you can make those hard decisions, so you can be insulated from repercussions if the public doesn't like decisions that you're required by the law to make. So you know, Justice Roberts has gone on record and said there are no Democratic judges and no Republican judges, and by and large, that's true, and that's what we want. We want an independent judiciary that calls the balls and calls the strikes and keeps the country on the straight path forward. Yeah, I think that that's – I think that that is absolutely right. I, I do I, – um, I, I will say that – more, more, you know, more and more, I do see uh, people losing that faith in the judiciary. I see, for example, uh, more that people talk about judges depending on who they're appointed by. Um, they, you know, ascribe very nefarious motives sometimes to the decisions that judges make, and I think it's it's really runs in parallel to. How people's view of law enforcement has changed. You know, I mean, I, I will say, Joyce, coming from my perspective in my state of Illinois, the federal prosecutors are viewed as the the sheriffs who clean up Illinois and they get rid of the corrupt politicians on both sides. And now we have a situation where people are wondering when there's a 
federal prosecution, what the political agenda is. Is Senator Burr being investigated because he's an enemy of Trump's or didn't kowtow to Trump? So I think, you know, more and more I do see a loss in faith in our institutions, both the judiciary and law enforcement. And, you know, people can argue whether that's good or bad. I will say that it is uh, it's very significant, and I it, it, I don't see any way that that is going to be reversed uh, quickly uh, after Trump leaves office. You know, part of that is at President Trump's doorstep. He certainly affirmatively campaigned against the institutions, and he's denigrated law enforcement and other institutions so people don't know whether they can trust them or not. But But part of that, to be frank, and this is maybe a longer conversation, is that those institutions in some ways weren't serving the people the way that they were intended to and were in need of reform. So unfortunately, we're in the middle of a perfect storm, a perfect crisis of confidence in institutions. And one of the big challenges going forward will be not just to ask people to blindly trust in institutions because they've been around for a long time, but but to reshape those institutions and to listen to voices from across the country and to make sure that we really are doing the right thing, not just saying we're doing the right thing. Yeah, I think that that's that's really uh, well said, Joyce. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm very big on uh, questioning institutions, questioning authority. I think that that's a good and healthy practice. And it's safe to say that there's a lot of practices of federal prosecutors that are in need of reform, potentially. And similarly with judges, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the way, for example, the judiciary has been transformed uh, during the Trump era um, and, you know, more generally about how the way in which, for example, we select judges and so forth. But, um, you know, uh, you know, as a, that that the conversation should be done sort of in a in a eyes open way talking about reform rather than the way it is now, which is I feel like Trump has kind of created this almost conspiracy theory sense that while yes, it's it's certainly held by his fervent supporters, I feel like on both sides now, and I, I hate the term both sides, but I would just say I think even people who just let's put it this way, even people who disagree with Trump now are often skeptical and questioning uh, every judicial decision, uh, every prosecution, and so on. I think that's right. And, and one thing that we have an obligation as lawyers to talk with people about is to, to remind them that courts are not good if they decide cases the way you want them to decide them and bad if you if they decide cases in a way that you would prefer that they not decide them. That's, you know, this is how the law works. The rule of law is about having clear laws that are available for everybody to understand and that apply equally to everyone. And that means sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But the whole point of the system is that it shouldn't be partisan. The success of, of judges and of the judiciary as a whole shouldn't be measured based on whether we quote unquote like their decisions. It should be based on whether or not we have an active functioning rule of law system. Let, let me switch gears a little bit. I know we have some questions from listeners about the decisions yesterday. Uh, Patty, do you have a, a, a question that you uh, that you want to uh, pose? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, this uh, generated a lot of conversation on your thread. Uh, based on the Vance ruling, Trump's lawyers can challenge specifics of the subpoena and try to narrow it. But aside from hush money probe, the hush money probe, hasn't the statute of limitations on taxes likely expired already? 
And are civil penalties more likely than criminal charges? Oh, such a good question. Um, And the answer could go so many different directions. I'll just flag one issue. When you are charging um, conspiracies, the statute of limitations tends to run a little bit longer than it does for substantive acts. It usually will run from the last act of the conspiracy, and that can include an effort to cover up the conspiracy. So, you know, you've got a rich field here. Um, would not want to prejudge whether any particular events involve uh, covering up a conspiracy, covering up criminal conduct, and might extend the statute of limitations here. Uh, don't have any way of knowing for sure what Syvance is investigating and whether there could be any ongoing frauds that would still be well within statute. But my guess is that he wouldn't have a grand jury and wouldn't have pursued this case all the way to the Supreme Court if he was going to come up empty-handed. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. I'm I'm not even gonna. I really won't add much because Joyce answered. I think it perfectly, which is essentially what you should. What your your point is, Joyce, is these is if you do, for example, if you commit a crime ten years ago, and you're still trying to hide it today, you take active steps to hide uh, your wrongdoing. Uh, that can be a continuation, for example, of the conspiracy, and so. You it, it then that entire all the acts of the conspiracy fall within uh, this statute of limitations. So, um, and I agree with you, Joyce, that clearly Syvance uh, thinks that there's something within the statute. So, um, yeah, I, I will say that um, you know I think you're seeing starting to see some of that skepticism. Well, let me ask you this: I mean, one thing I did see from some people are these bold predictions about state court charges coming in the near future. I have to say, Joyce, I haven't really seen anything that suggests to me that state court charges are uh, on the way anytime soon. Uh, It seems to me like there's an ongoing investigation and we don't know exactly what's going to come of that. What's your take? I think that you're dead on the money here. We just simply don't know um, I, I did check yesterday to see if there was actually a sitting grand jury waiting on the ruling in this case in Manhattan and was told that there was not one. Um, so there's no flurry of activity that looks like someone is jumping on the process of indicting. And that's not a surprise because I don't know how you would use taxes, but you know, as a federal prosecutor, for one thing, there was usually some delay in getting tax records. It would take a while to get the sign-up in Washington you needed, so it could be a matter of a couple of months. So in a fraud case or a financial case where I thought the tax records were going to be a good roadmap for me, I would go ahead and get the order in to get them as early as possible because I wanted to use tax returns early in the investigation because they often were sort of like breadcrumbs telling you telling you where you should look, where you might find good evidence of crimes that you were investigating. It could be that there's a certain type of fraud case where you don't need the tax records until closer to the end, that they're just the final linchpin piece of evidence. Um, so that's my super wishy-washy answer and way of saying, I, I wouldn't expect that we're going to see a state court indictment today or tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, and just to piggyback on what you said, I knew prosecutors who at the beginning of every financial case they had fraud case they would they would 
uh, request and obtain tax returns early on when they were assigned the case. Yeah. Um, so they could use them later first on, assuming. Step, right. Yeah. First step, because they figure they're going to be useful at some point in the investigation. And so, you know, sometimes when you hear people saying grand pronouncements, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, necessarily sign on to that. Patty, do we have uh, another question about, uh, about uh, the uh, records? Absolutely. Um, if Vance finds national security concerns in Trump's docs, can he give them to the FBI and can he give them to Congress? What he can do with the records that he obtains will be subscribed by New York grand jury law. I am not an expert on New York's grand jury law in the federal system. The answer would be that if you wanted to turn them over to another level of law enforcement, you could do it. The safest way to do that is always to get a court order permitting you to do it. Um, but I honestly don't know what the rules are in New York. I would guess that they're going to be something similar to the federal rules. Yeah, that would be my guess as well. Uh, like uh, Joyce, I'm not a, an expert in New York law. I'm licensed in Illinois and California. Uh, and when I have cases in New York, I uh, I uh, bring in a uh, a local lawyer. I have Ann Milgram I brought in recently on a case, for example, uh, who knows New York law better than I do. Uh, but I will just say that, yeah, my expectation would be that he could get a for example, court to permit him to share things with the FBI. I don't, and Congress, I think, is further afield. Everyone needs to remember the reason that Joyce said grand jury um, it, it rules is that these are grand jury subpoenas. So we, I think, everybody became familiar with grand jury secrecy around the Mueller uh, report time. So this is a similar sort of thing. You're obtaining subpoenas via grand jury uh, a subpoena, or excuse me, materials via grand jury subpoena. And so that means that those are secret. It's one thing to share them with another law enforcement agency. Certainly, as the you know, Joyce pointed out, as the in the federal system, you know, that's routinely done. If you're a federal prosecutor, you if you find some uh, evidence of a state court crime during your federal investigation, you can get permission to turn those over to state law enforcement. Uh, but what the New York rules are, I'm not sure of. But I think you know one thing that this really leads to, Joyce, is I think is a uh, you know, people are interested in terms of will this, um, you know, will this lead to some sort of prosecution, which I can understand why people are concerned about. I know there's been a lot of speculation about, for example, whether what the Southern District is doing. And we saw, you know, another thing we saw this week was Jeff Berman's testimony before Congress, which was not public, but we did get to read his statement, which I thought was interesting. You know, do what is your what do you what do you make of you know, his concern uh, that Barr wanted to, you know, control the work of the Southern District. And certainly, you know, obviously Barr made false statements and seemed like in a big rush to get in control of what was happening there. Yeah, you know, Berman has had an amazing transformation. He was originally slated to be the Trump pick for the Southern District of New York. That sort of fell by the wayside, and he ended up as a court-appointed U.S. attorney when under the Vacancy Reform Act, um, they ran out of time there. So it's, I think, important to note his origins in noting that at the end, he was not aligned with the administration or with the attorney general. And in the four-page statement, which is all that we know about the closed-door testimony he gave the House Judiciary Committee yesterday, 
he said that he told the attorney general, he told Bill Barr he wanted to stay in place as U.S. attorney because there were investigations that needed to proceed. We don't know what they're about, right? They could be civil rights cases. They could be cybercrime cases. They could be bank fraud cases, or they could be cases that involve the president or the president's cronies. The reason that we have suspicion that everything is not okay here is because Berman, according to his testimony, told Barr that he wouldn't resign. They agreed that they would talk the following day on Saturday, and Friday night, Bill Barr rushed to the press a statement saying that Berman had resigned, which was not true, and Berman had to correct that record publicly. But an additional detail that we learned from his written testimony yesterday was that Barr tried to sort of hammer him into leaving. He told him, um, you know, being fired won't look good on your record. I think Preet Bharara, one of Berman's predecessors who was fired, might disagree with that. Being fired by Trump has stood Preet in pretty good stead moving forward. Um, but in, in Berman's situation, he was actually offered other jobs. He was offered the job of being the assistant attorney general for the civil division, which is a pretty big deal of a job. He was offered the position of being the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So the reason that they wanted Berman out was not a concern about his competence. It was apparently a need to get him out of that particular office. And that should make us all very nervous and very uncomfortable. You know, you like I remember in the Bush administration when nine U.S. attorneys were fired for political reasons and it forced an attorney general to resign. It was it was an enormous political scandal to politicize the offices like that. If it's true that Jeff Berman was forced out of the Southern District of New York to protect the president of the United States and that the attorney general played a personal role in that, then his resignation should be demanded. But I, I don't have confidence that the Republican Party will do that, that they'll protect the integrity of the Justice Department. Yeah, you know, I do. I certainly do remember that uh, that prior episode, Joyce, and I uh, joined the U.S. Attorney's Office not long after that. And uh, I, one thing that I found striking was not only was there just, you know, there's those those firings for political reasons, but, you know, there was uh, one of the sca supposedly scandalous things of that time. And it's just funny to see how times have changed was the mere suggestion. There was some person who I think who came up on a PowerPoint suggesting that Pat Fitzgerald had a go because he was investigating Scooter Libby, who was, you know, a, uh, a, a close friend and confidant of Dick Cheney's. And that was that suggestion was part of the scandal. And but they never even went forward and fired Fitzgerald. But the mere suggestion that they would get rid of Fitzgerald because he was pro, uh, because he was investigating and prosecuting Scooter Libby was scandalous. Nowadays, of course, you know, that's sort of commonplace that, that Trump goes after people who are whether they're inspectors general or uh, the you know FBI director, FBI de deputy director and so on. And here, I mean, it's it's hard to escape the conclusion, as you point out. I mean, being chairman of the SEC, that's an amazing job. That's a fantastic job. Being head of the civil division, these are really big jobs. And according to Berman, Barr was trying to convince him that, hey, these are going to be great for your resume. You're going to have to build a book of business to be able to say, look, I, ha I did all the civil work as well as criminal or that I was head of the SEC. These are going to be big draws. He's not wrong about those things, but... You know, it was interesting because what it showed was that Berman 
sussed out very quickly that this was about getting control of the Southern District. He wasn't going to uh, uh, stand up for that. And kudos to him for having some backbone. We don't, we don't see enough of that nowadays. And uh, I was actually impressed when I read that testimony with the, the level of backbone that he had. You know, it was. It was very, very low-key. Um, and this notion that, that Bill Barr, that the sitting attorney general, would suggest that the position, the the honor of having a political appointment and being trusted with serving the American people at a very high level, that it's nothing more than the opportunity to build a book of business so that you can go back out into private practice and, and get a big salary from a firm. That's that's so offensive. That's so contrary to the DNA of the Justice Department. I'm still sort of trying to process that, but it leaves me with the belief that every time that Bill Barr talks about the institution or doing the right thing, that we can just discount anything he says. This is clearly a man who has no love for the Justice Department, no love for the integrity of the institution. If he's willing to, to, for political reasons, fire an attorney general and have the audacity to suggest that the switch in jobs is just about making money, how, how offensive and how wrong? Yeah, it, it really is offensive. I couldn't agree with you more, Joyce. And I, I will say it is uh, it was bizarre. I mean, it's really revealing by Barr because it clearly means that Berman wasn't uh, – was it uh, being fired for cause? I mean, he's offering them really big jobs. Uh, and the other thing I think is just funny about it in a way is, look, if you're, you know, if you're someone like Berman, I mean, he's already had a successful career. If you're the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, uh, you can leave and get a job at a law firm and make a lot of money. I mean, at a certain point, like, who cares how much, you know, I mean, are you seriously going to jeopardize your integrity to make a little more money? I, I Maybe some people will do that. Maybe that's the kind of person that Barr's used to dealing with. But I have to say, uh, it, it's it's just uh, this presumption that somebody is going to be willing to, you know, just, you know, sacrifice everything to get a little bit more, I don't know, cash or career prospects. It's, it's, it's quite an assumption on Barr's part. Well, it really does speak to the sort of people that Barr thinks are appropriate for these high-ranking public service positions, and it does not speak well of him that he believes that they're just there to make a buck. Yeah, I mean, it certainly means that they're relying on him and that they're somebody who are in it, people who are in it for themselves. Uh, and that's really uh, not the kind, exactly the opposite of the people that we would want uh, to be in government service. You want people in government service who really – uh, believe in those jobs, who believe that they're doing the right thing. I, I remember when I joined uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was because I really wanted to feel passionate about what I was doing, and I really was excited about the mission of what we were doing. Uh, I I imagine you felt the same way. You were a prosecutor for many years, Joyce. I was. I was a federal prosecutor for 25 years, and I actually went to the U.S. Attorney's Office from private practice because my father-in-law, who was a federal judge, had been um, murdered, and we were so impressed and appreciative by the care that the federal prosecutors and the FBI agents and ATF agents who worked on that case, with their dedication to the job, and, and you know, we watched them work long hours and be away from their families to try cases, and we really felt like um, one of us, my husband or I, needed to sort of pay that forward and, and engage in government service for a few years. And so I looked at it as a real honor and a, a commitment to the public to be able to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office 
I think I took at the time a 50% pay cut. And at the time when I left DOJ, 25 years later, I was making maybe a smidge more than I had made as a first-year associate at a big DC firm. So in other words, not a decision I made for the money. Without a doubt. Yeah, I made about a third of what I made, I think, in private practice when I left uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I don't think I ever matched what I was making in private practice. It was just something I did for a decade because it was or almost a decade because it was, you know, uh, you know, an opportunity to do something really special. I mean, frankly, I I will say that. Yeah, I feel that way, too. I mean, I'll feel that way, too. It's it, it was. Uh, an amazing opportunity. Um, and uh, I felt, you know, one thing about it, I mean, I will say sometimes people get those jobs really young or really junior. And I wasn't one of those people. I felt like for me, I, I had such an appreciation for what I was doing because I, you know, I realized that this isn't, not every lawyer has the opportunity to do such meaningful things, to make such an impact on people's lives. And even when I was doing things that were hard, like if you're trying to find, there were times when I, was trying to find somebody who was kidnapped and I didn't find him in time, uh, would turn into a murder or whatever. These disappointments, you still felt very good about the work you were doing, that you were, that you were on the right side, you were doing something that you felt uh, good about. It was important but difficult work. I don't think um, William Barr, the current attorney general, feels the same way about it that you and I do, though. I think that's clearly the case, and I will say, just to, uh, as a side a side note, uh, I'm not saying that this means federal prosecutors are perfect. I think, as we said before, there can be reasons for reform, but you know, I think an important part of it, you know, prosecutors are supposed to be using discretion, and and you have this power uh, that you have that you're exercising on behalf of the people, and. Part of what you're doing is exercising that with the right temperament and with a goal towards being fair and, and doing justice as opposed to exercising that for some agenda, whether it's to get a book of business like Barr suggesting, as you pointed out, uh, Joyce, or or just you know for your own um, ego or to just win a case for the sake of winning a case. That's not what the Justice Department is supposed to be about. And I think – you know, you're, you raise such a good point that really his whole attitude there kind of betrays uh, a lack of, of understanding what the Justice Department is supposed to be about. You know, leadership is a top-down sort of an exercise, and so I worry about the example that he sets for young federal prosecutors. I think in your office, you work for Pat Fitzgerald, you know, the legendary um, U.S. attorney in Chicago for uh, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, which is very unusual. I worked for some really remarkable people, criminal chiefs. I worked for Doug Jones when Doug was a U.S. attorney. Um, and I always remember the marching orders Eric Holt gave me when I asked him what he wanted me to do as a U.S. attorney. And he just looked at me and he said, just do the right thing. That was what I always felt like my marching orders were at DOJ, to figure out what the right thing was and to do it, to try to serve the people. Um, that's what the Justice Department should be all about. Absolutely. Well, look, I, I will say, Joyce, I, um, it, you know, whenever I talk with you, I sort of, it, it goes in a direction I don't always anticipate, but it's such a wonderful one. I, I feel like, um, I always learn something, and you know, you are, um, in many ways, you represent uh, a, a lot of what is good about our just our justice department, and I really believe that that some of that remains despite uh, everything, because there's a lot of great people in the justice department, despite what 
uh, Bill Barr is doing. So I really appreciate you joining us. Well, you're kind to say all that. That was a very polite way of saying um, that I apparently have attention deficit podcasting and, and drove us completely <laughs> off topic. But I do think that you're right. I think that the, the strength of the Justice Department is is the career people that are there, the good people that are there. We need new leadership. Um, but I think whoever those new leaders are, they will have folks who will be delighted to rally around the flag and fix what's broken. Amen to that. And I'm looking forward to that day. Well, thanks. Thank you so much, Joyce. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Talk with y'all soon. You and Patty take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 